Book One, Part Six of Herodotus' Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shalifa Mulligan. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by A. D. Godley. Book One, Part Six. Paragraph 94 to 113. Herodotus, Book 1, Part 6. The customs of the Lydians are like those of the Greeks, except that they make prostitutes of their female children. They were the first men whom we know who coined and used gold and silver currency, and they were the first to sell by retail. And, according to what they themselves say, the games now in use among them and the Greeks were invented by the Lydians. These, they say, were invented among them at a time when they colonized Tyrrhenia. This is their story. In the reign of Attis, son of Manes, there was great scarcity of food in all Lydia. For a while the Lydians bore this with what patience they could. Presently, when the famine did not abate, they looked for remedies, and different plans were devised by different men. Then it was that they invented the games of dice and knuckle-bones, and ball and all other forms of game except dice, which the Lydians do not claim to have discovered. Then, using their discovery to lighten the famine, every other day they would play for the whole day, so that they would not have to look for food and the next day they quit their play and ate. This was their way of life for eighteen years. But the famine did not cease to trouble them, and instead afflicted them even more. At last their king divided the people into two groups, and made them draw lots, so that one group should remain, and the other leave the country. He himself was to be the head of those who drew the lot to remain there, and his son, whose name was Tyrannus, Tyrannus of those who departed. Then the one group, having drawn the lot, left the country and came down to Smyrna and built ships, in which they loaded all their goods that could be transported aboard ship, and sailed away to seek a livelihood and a country, until at last, after sojourning with one people after another, they came to the Omrishi, where they founded cities and have lived ever since. They no longer called themselves Lydians, but Tyrrhenians, after the name of the king's son, who had led them there. The Lydians, then, were enslaved by the Persians. But the next business of my history is to inquire who the Cyrus was, who took down the power of Croesus, and how the Persians came to be the rulers of Asia. I mean, then, to be guided in what I write by some of the Persians, who desire not to magnify the story of Cyrus, but to tell the truth, though there are no less than three other accounts of Cyrus which I could give. After the Assyrians had ruled Upper Asia for five hundred and twenty years, the Medes were the first who began to revolt from them. These, it would seem, proved their bravery in fighting for freedom against the Assyrians. They cast off their slavery and won freedom. Afterwards, the other subject nations, too, did the same as the Medes. All of those on the mainland were now free men, 
they came to be ruled by monarchs again, as I will now relate. There was among the Medes a clever man called Deoces. He was the son of Fra Orotes. Deoces was infatuated with sovereignty, and so he set about gaining it. Already a notable man in his own town, one of the many towns into which Medea was divided, he began to profess and practice justice more constantly and zealously than ever, and he did this even though there was much lawlessness throughout the land of Media, and though he knew that injustice is always the enemy of justice. Then the Medes of the same town, seeing his behaviour, chose him to be their judge, and he, for he coveted sovereign power, was honest and just. By acting so, he won no small praise from his fellow townsmen, to such an extent that when the men of the other towns learned that Deoces alone gave fair judgments, having before suffered from unjust decisions, they came often and gladly to plead before Deoces, and at last they would submit to no arbitration but his. The number of those who came grew ever greater, for they heard that each case turned out in accord with the truth. Then Dioses, seeing that everything now depended on him, would not sit in his former seat of judgment, and said he would give no more decisions, for it was of no advantage to him, he said, to leave his own business, and spent all day judging the cases of his neighbours. This caused robbery and lawlessness to increase greatly in the towns, and gathering together, the Medes conferred about their present affairs, and said, here, as I suppose, the main speakers were Dioces' friends, since we cannot go on living in the present way in the land, come, let us set up a king over us. In this way the land will be well governed, and we ourselves shall attend to our business and not be routed by lawlessness. With such words they persuaded themselves to be ruled by a king. The question was at once propounded, whom should they make king? Then every man was loud in putting Dioces forward and praising Dioces, until they agreed that he should be their king. He ordered them to build him houses worthy of his royal power, and strengthen him with a bodyguard. The Medes did so. They built him a big and strong house wherever in the land he indicated to them, and let him choose a bodyguard out of all the Medes. And having obtained power, he forced the Medes to build him one city and to fortify and care for this more strongly than all the rest. The Medes did this for him too. So he built the big and strong walls, one standing inside the next in circles, which are now called Agbatana. This fortress is so designed that each circle of walls is higher than the next outer circle, by no more than the height of its battlements to which plan the site itself on a hill in the plain, contributes somewhat, but chiefly it was accomplished by skill. There are seven circles in all, within the innermost circle are the palace and the treasuries, and the longest wall is about the length of the wall that surrounds the city of Athens. The battlements of the first circle are white, of the second black, of the third circle purple, of the fourth blue, and of the fifth orange. Thus the battlements of five circles are painted with colours, and the battlements of the last two circles are coated, the one with silver and the other with gold. Doses built these walls for himself and around his own quarters, and he ordered the people to dwell outside the wall. And when it was all built, 
Deusis was first to establish the rule that no one should come into the presence of the king, but everything should be done by means of messengers, that the king should be seen by no one, and, moreover, that it should be a disgrace for anyone to laugh or to spit in his presence. He was careful to hatch himself with all this, so that the men of his own age, who had been brought up with him and were as nobly born as he and his equals in courage, instead of seeing him and being upset and perhaps moved to plot against him, might by reason of not seeing him believe him to be different. When he had made these arrangements, and strengthened himself with sovereign power, he was a hard man in the protection of justice. They would write down their pleas and send them in to him. Then he would pass judgment on what was brought to him and send his decisions out. This was his manner of deciding cases at law, and he had other arrangements too, for when he heard that a man was doing violence, he would send for him and punish him, as each offence deserved, and he had spies and eavesdroppers everywhere in his domain. Theoses then united the Median nation by itself and ruled it. The Median tribes are these, the Busei, the Peritessini, the Strogates, the Arizenti, the Budii, the Magi. Their tribes are this many. Dioses had a son, Phraotis, who inherited the throne when Dioses died after a reign of fifty-three years. Having inherited it, he was not content to rule the Medes alone. Marching against the Persians, he attacked them first, and they were the first whom he made subject to the Medes. Then, with these two strong nations at his back, he subjugated one nation of Asia after another, until he marched against the Assyrians, that is, against those of the Assyrians who held Niners. These had formerly been rulers of all, but now their allies had deserted them, and they were left alone, though well off themselves. Marching against these Assyrians, then, Phraotis and most of his army perished after he had reigned twenty-two years. At his death he was succeeded by his son Cyaxares. He is said to have been a much greater soldier than his ancestors. It was he who first organized the men of Asia in companies and posted each arm apart, the spearmen and archers and cavalry. Before this they were all mingled together in confusion. This was a king who fought against the Lydians when the day was turned to night in the battle, and who united under his dominion all of Asia that is beyond the river Hales. Collecting all his subjects, he marched against Ninus, wanting to avenge his father and to destroy the city. He defeated the Assyrians in battle, but while he was besieging their city, a great army of Scythians came down upon him, led by their king Medes, son of Prototheus. They had invaded Asia, after they had driven the Cimmerians out of Europe, pursuing them in their flight, the Scythians came to the Median country. It is a thirty days' journey for an unencumbered man from the Maeatian lake to the river Phasis and the land of the Colchai. From the Colchai it is an easy matter to cross into Media. There is only one nation between, the Sesperes. To pass these is to be in Media. Nevertheless, it was not by this way that the Scythians entered. They turned aside and came by the upper and much longer way, keeping the Caucasian mountains on their right. 
There the Medes met the Scythians, who defeated them in battle, deprived them of their rule, and made themselves masters of all Asia. From there they marched against Egypt, and when they were in the part of Syria called Palestine, Psammaticus, king of Egypt, met them, and persuaded them with gifts and prayers to come no further. So they turned back, and when they came on their way to the city of Ascalon in Syria, most of the Scythians passed by and did no harm, but a few remained behind and plundered the temple of heavenly Aphrodite. This temple, I discover from making inquiry, is the oldest of all the temples of the goddess, for the temple in Cyprus was founded from it, as the Cyprians themselves say, and the temple on Satyra was founded by Phoenicians from this same land of Syria. But the Scythians who pillaged the temple, and all their descendants after them, were reflected by the goddess with the female sickness, and so the Scythians say that they are reflected as a consequence of this, and also that those who visit Scythian territory see among them the condition of those whom the Scythians call hermaphrodite. The Scythians then ruled Asia for twenty-eight years, and the whole land was ruined because of their violence and their pride, for besides exacting from each the tribute which was assessed, they rode about the land carrying off every one's possessions. Most of them were entertained, and made drunk and then slain by Cyxares and the Medes. So thus the Medes took back their empire and all that they had formerly possessed. And they took Ninus, how I will describe in a later part of my history, and brought all Assyria except the province of Babylon under their rule. Afterwards, Cyaxares died after a reign of forty years, among which I count the years of the Scythian domination, and his son Asiagis inherited the sovereignty. Asiagis had a daughter whom he called Vendani. He dreamt that she urinated so much that she filled his city and flooded all of Asia. He communicated this vision to those of the Magi who interpreted dreams, and when he heard what they told him, he was terrified, and presently, when Mandani was of marriageable age, he feared the vision too much to give her to any Medi worthy to marry into his family, but married her to a Persian called Cambyses, a man whom he knew to be well-born and of a quiet temper, for Asiages held Cambyses to be much lower than a Medi of middle rank. But during the first year that Mandani was married to Cambyses, Asiages saw a second vision. He dreamt that the vine grew out of the genitals of his daughter, and that the vine covered the whole of Asia. Having seen this vision, and communicated it to the interpreters of dreams, he sent to the Persians for his daughter, who was about to give birth, and when she arrived kept her guarded, meaning to kill whatever child she bore, for the interpreters declared that the meaning of his dream was that his daughter's offspring would rule in his place. Anxious to prevent this, Asiages, when Cyrus was born, summoned Harpagus, a man of his household who was his most faithful servant among the Medes, and was administrator of all that was his, and he said, Harpagus, whatever business I turn over to you, do not mishandle it, and do not leave me out of account, and, giving others preference, trip over your own feet afterwards. Take the child that Mandani bore, and carry him to your house, and kill him, 
and then bury him however you like. O oh, king, Harpagus answered, never yet have you noticed anything displeasing in your man, and I shall be careful in the future, too, not to err in what concerns you. If it is your will that this be done, then my concern ought to be attend to it scrupulously. Harpagus answered this. The child was then given to him, consigned to its death, and he went to his house weeping. When he came in, he told his wife the entire speech uttered by Astyages. "'Now, then,' she said to him, "'what do you propose to do?' "'Not to obey Astyages' instructions,' he answered. "'Not even if he should lose his mind and be more frantic than he is now. "'I will not lend myself to his plan or be an accessory to such a murder. "'There are many reasons why I will not kill him. "'Because the child is related to me, "'and because Astyages is old and has no male children.' Now, if the sovereignty passes to this daughter of his after his death, whose son he is now killing by means of me, what is left for me but the graves of all dangers? For the sake of my safety, this child has to die, but one of Astyages' own people has to be the murderer, and not one of mine. So saying, he sent a messenger at once to one of Astyages' cowherds, who he knew passages hurt him the likely spots, and where the mountains were most infested with wild beasts. The man's name was Mitridates, and his wife was a slave like him. Her name was in the Greek language Sino, and the Median Spago, for Spax is a Median word for dog. The foothills of the mountains where this coward pastured his cattle are north of Agbatana, towards the Axian Sea. For the rest of Media, is everywhere a level plain, but here on the side of the Cespies the land is very high and mountainous and covered with woods. So when the coward came in haste at the summons, Harpagus said, Asiagus wants you to take this child and leave it in the most desolate part of the mountains, so that it will perish as quickly as possible, and he wants me to tell you that if you do not kill it but preserve it somehow, you will undergo the most harrowing death and I am ordered to see it exposed. Hearing this, the coward took the child and went back the same way and came to his dwelling. Now, as it happened, his wife, too, had been on the verge of delivering every day, and, as the divinity would have it, she did in fact give birth while the coward was away in the city. Each of them was anxious for the other, the husband being afraid about his wife's labour, and the wife because she did not know why Harpagus had so unexpectedly sent for her husband. So, when he returned and stood before her, she was startled by the unexpected sight, and asked him before he could speak why Harpagus had so insistently summoned him. Wife, he said, when I came to the city, I saw and heard what I ought never to have seen, and what ought never to have happened to our masters. Harpagus' whole house was full of weeping, Astonished, I went in, and immediately I saw a child lying there struggling and crying, adorned in gold and embroidered clothing. And when Harpagus saw me, he told me to take the child in haste and bring it away and leave it, where the mountains are the most infested with wild beasts. It was Astyages, he said, who enjoined this on me, and Harpagus threatened me grievously if I did not do it. So I took him and brought him away supposing him to be the child of one of the servants, for I could never have guessed whose he was. 
but I was amazed at seeing him adorned with gold and clothing, and at hearing, too, the evident sound of weeping in the house of Harpagus. Very soon, on the way, I learned the whole story from the servant who brought me out of the city, and gave the child into my custody, namely, that it was the son of Mandani, the king's daughter, and Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, and that Estiagus gave the command to kill him, and now here he is. And as he said this, the cowherd uncovered it and showed it. But when the woman saw how fine and fair the child was, she began to cry and laid hold of the man's knees and begged him by no means to expose him. But the husband said he could not do otherwise, for he said spies would be coming from her pages to see what was done, and he would have to die a terrible death if he did not obey. Being unable to move her husband, the woman then said, "'Since I cannot convince you not to expose it, then, if a child has to be seen exposed, do this. I, too, have borne a child, but I bore it dead. Take this one and put it out, but the child of the daughter of Estiagus, let us raise it, as if it were our own. This way you won't be caught disobeying our masters, and we will not have plotted badly.' for the dead child will have royal burial, and the living will not lose his wife. Thinking that his wife advised him excellently in his present strait, the coward immediately did as she said. He gave his wife the child whom he had brought to kill, and his own dead child he put into the chest in which he carried the other, and dressed it with all the other's child finery, and left it out in the most desolate part of the mountains. Then, on the third day, after leaving the child out, the cowherd left one of his herdsmen to watch it, and went to the city, where he went to Harpagus' house, and said he was ready to show the child's dead body. Harpagus sent the most trusted of his bodyguard, and these saw for him and buried the cowherd's child. So it was buried, and the cowherd's wife kept and raised the boy, who was afterwards named Cyrus, but she did not give him that name, but another. End of Book 1, Part 6